Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to a special edition, episode 154. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. There's breaking news that I think you need to hear about. So I've got a special episode for you. Because especially in this already wild winter of 2022, now is a time to stay vigilant. The investigation found that a single explosive device killed at least 170 Afghan civilians and 13 U.S. service members by explosively directing ball bearings through a packed crowd and into our men and women at Abbey Gate. The disturbing lethality of this device was confirmed by the 58 U.S. service members who were killed and wounded despite the universal wear of body armor and helmets that did stop ball bearings that impacted them but could not prevent catastrophic injuries to areas not covered. That's CENTCOM Commander General Kenneth McKenzie. Thirteen service members died. Forty-five were injured. One hundred and seventy. Afghan civilians dead. That tragic part of the debacle in Afghanistan is fairly well known. That awful and deadly truth came out almost as it happened. But there's much more about that terrible time in Afghanistan that has been unknown or hidden. And now, months later, the truth about how fucked up things were in Afghanistan and why is finally starting to come out. I've called what happened in Afghanistan the great American betrayal of Afghanistan. We've covered it at length on this show. But over six months later, the spin from the White House continues as Afghans continue to be killed and to starve and to die. The real carnage in Afghanistan is now being seen. And so is the real truth here at home. The Biden administration led a catastrophic exit from Afghanistan and made many bad decisions that made things worse. Getting out of Afghanistan may or may not have been the right thing to do, but it didn't have to go down like that. And despite what many in the White House would like, we will not forget about Afghanistan. And many of us refuse to let it become forgotistan. We refuse to stop focusing on it, and we refuse to stop demanding the truth, and we refuse to stop demanding accountability, because there hasn't been any. Six months later, they still deny the truth, and nobody has been fired in Washington. Not one person. Not one person has been fired. Not one person has resigned. And now, as you heard in our last episode especially, there's the prospect of a whole new war. And they say, trust us. The AP reported on it this week. When President Biden's administration was asked for evidence to back up dramatic claims about a national security development this past week, it demurred with a simple rejoinder. You have to trust us on that. No, they wouldn't reveal what led them to say that they knew Russia was plotting a false flag operation as a pretext to invade Ukraine. No, they wouldn't explain their confidence that civilian casualties were called by a suicide bombing rather than U.S. Special Forces during a raid in Syria. 
They just keep saying, trust us, trust us, trust us. And the administration took a really nasty turn as spokespeople suggested reporters were buying in to foreign propaganda by even asking such questions. Trust us, they say. But that shit doesn't fly from any administration. And especially for the families of service members who are being put in harm's way right now. It's the same sort of arrogant, insulting, ineffective tone we've heard from the president, Jen Psaki, and the White House before Afghanistan fell. And as questions again come up around transparency and tone from this administration, remember, these are the same leaders that were there when Afghanistan collapsed. As Russia threatens war in Ukraine, and they say, trust us, the same people who claimed it was impossible to predict the rapid pace of the Taliban's takeover are still there. The same ones, Price, Sullivan, Saki, Kirby, Blinken, they're all still there. Nobody was fired, not one. And now, after bungling and botching Afghanistan, they've all failed up and get to lead our country and our troops through a whole new conflict that, like Afghanistan, could last 20 years. So remember the Afghanistan debacle. Every time they say we should just trust them. And remember what you're about to hear. One of our most tenacious guests is back. And he's got breaking news about Afghanistan that will impact everything from Afghanistan in the future to the midterms to Ukraine. This is about much more than Afghanistan. Dan Lamoth is back. Dan is one of the best military and Pentagon reporters in America. He's written about the armed forces for more than a decade. He's traveled extensively around the world and to combat zones. He's embedded with U.S. forces, and he's covered combat in Afghanistan numerous times. He's been breaking news for months, and his intrepid reporting is breaking new news that you need to know more about. He joined us for a special dispatch back in January of last year, where we talked about the National Guard forces preparing for a possible insurrection. He was ahead of the curve then, and he's remained ahead of the curve ever since. And he's ahead of the curve now, and he's back for a special episode that you need to hear. It'll help you stay vigilant, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. So, welcome back to Afghanistan. Welcome back to the future. Welcome to a special extra breaking news episode. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 154. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world. You know that this show keeps a focus on national security, military affairs, veterans issues, global security, a lot of the stuff that most news shows gloss over uh, and don't keep a focus on. We are always going to keep that focus. It remains, in my view, the most important issues that we need to focus on. And joining us today to break down Afghanistan, press access and everything else that's happening uh, is a returning champion, a friend of the show, the great and powerful Dan Lamoth is back on Independent Americans. Welcome back, Dan. How are you? Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great having you back. Um, you got a suit on now and, and your your profile continues to rise. For folks that are watching, I got to start by asking you, uh, over your left shoulder, 
Uh, we have we have this posted on video as well. You got a lot. You're, you're killing me here. You got a lot of Red Sox shit over your left shoulder. Is that is that big poppy uh, over waving after winning the World Series? Or what do you got over there behind you? Uh, I, that is uh, David Ortiz on kind of his send off. Uh, and then, yes, that is a baseball from the 2004 World Series. Uh, and then, yeah, a couple photos of family. Love it. Love it. I wore my Amherst Mammoth T-shirt in honor of you, okay, because you went to UMass, I went to Amherst. Since last we spoke, you also generously visited my seminar, my poli-sci seminar at Amherst on understanding 9-11 and talked about your story, which was awesome. So I want to thank you for that. But as I told my students, I think you're one of the most important reporters in America. And now as these conflicts, you know, go global, maybe globally, um, you're, you know, you've been continuing to break stories. Uh, when we had you on a little over a year ago, we were talking about National Guard deployments pre-inauguration, right? So that was a really dicey time in military affairs. Fast forward, uh, we've had an insurrection. Uh, we've had the Afghanistan implosion. We've now got Ukraine. I want to start with your uh, most recent reporting because you continue to break stories. And, and also, you know, hat tip uh, to Alex Horton, who is you know, working with you on this and is also a veteran himself, a guy that's been doing great reporting. But uh, the headline here on Afghanistan, what I've been saying is the truth will continue to come out. And it feels like the White House has their version of the truth. And there is another version of the truth that continues to pour out in reporting and now in your most recent reporting. So can you give us you know, the headlines and what you think is most important about your latest reporting on Afghanistan? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so so the, the, the headline is basically that the senior U.S. military commanders who are in charge of the evacuation on the ground uh, two-star admiral, two-star general, one-star general, um, all were pretty deeply frustrated uh, with what they were getting from Washington. Uh, not only during the evacuation, but prior to the evacuation, uh, there was this belief in the military uh, that more needed to be done to prepare for the evacuation, uh, that it could come fast, uh, and that they needed to stage people, stage food, stage water, and really be ready for what could be a pretty big thing. Uh, they did assume, in part, that they would have some cooperation from Afghan forces in the event of an evacuation. That didn't happen, obviously. There were virtually no Afghan forces involved. Uh, you, you had a couple exceptions, but, but basically you were on your own and relying on, on the Taliban uh, at, you know, at the edge of the airport. Um, but, but, you know, very specifically, uh, you know, uh, you've got a one-star Marine General, uh, Sullivan, uh, saying that he didn't think the NSC, the National Security Council, was acting with any kind of urgency. Uh, you've got the two-star admiral in charge of the whole thing, uh, Admiral Basley, uh, saying that you know he was frustrated and felt like if they had paid more attention to the indicators in the weeks and months leading up to August, uh, that they could have done more and been more effective. Uh, and then you've got General Donahue, the two-star from 82nd Airborne Division, who arrives a bit later, uh, he's one who did a lot of interface with the Taliban uh, and, and pretty blunt comments about when he first got there, the tensions were still high with the Taliban. They didn't really know what they would get from the Taliban uh, and him saying more or less like you're going to have to cooperate. And if you don't, we'll be able to kill more of you than you can of us. That's not exactly like a, a neat and pretty picture. So um, on the other side of this and, and this and, and, and in my experience, right? What we heard from the military leaders and your reporting has exposed sounded like what veterans were saying, what folks like Matt Zeller were saying, you know, this is going south. It's going south fast. You're sprinkling sunshine here and telling the American people something different. But you also expose really what seems like a pissing match 
between the the military leadership and the State Department. Can you talk about who was on the other side of that equation opposite the generals and where that friction was? Uh, yeah, I, I think you've got a couple competing things here. Um, and, and I tried my hardest to get some more State Department perspective in the story. And, you know, it would, I, there was nobody on the record in the first version of the story that went up on the record. Uh, they addressed it uh, at a briefing later uh, in the afternoon once the story had already been up a while uh, and, and took exception to some of the comments in there and, and sort of seemed to imply I was cherry picking. The reality is the whole report was filled with things along these lines. Um, in terms of the, the dynamics and the friction between them, you have the military who's trying to prepare for this, uh, have been planning for months, did have an option to potentially include Bagram in there. That was at least in the discussion. Uh, not necessarily a best option, but like at least a part of the discussion was to use both airfields. Um, on the flip side, you've got the ambassador, uh, and in the eyes of the military, uh, he didn't want to move forward with the evacuation. He saw it as important to keep the embassy. He thought without the embassy, we wouldn't be able to influence the country later. Uh, and, and sort of that dynamic of when do you sequence certain things uh, and the ambassador being concerned, and, and I think there's a, a fair point here as well, the more you do that makes it overtly obvious that you're going to evacuate, the more you may knock over some of those dominoes too. So how much can you do before you kind of set the cart in motion one way or the other? So I, the issue I want to get at, and you always get at, is what's the truth, right? Like what's the core here? And can you talk about the report? You mentioned the report. What is the report? How did you get it? And and why is this uh, information only coming out now? Sure. So th this report, uh, one, includes about 2,000 pages worth of documents. Uh, it, it was released to the Washington Post, and I believe probably other media outlets late Friday, um, as the Pentagon uh, rolled out their top line findings of this big investigation into that awful bombing we had, where you had 13 Americans killed and 170 Afghans, give or take. Uh, the, the, the briefing focused heavily on, on the bombing itself, you know, the fact that it really was only one explosion, uh, their belief that there wasn't anyone killed by gunfire. A lot of that was confusing in August. You know, the, the, the story shifted over time as more information came in. This was basically their postscript on that. Um, but, but then we get the, the report, and, and anytime a big report's released, I'm always looking at, okay, what's your summary say? And then what's your witness statement say? And sometimes you have to fight through FOIA in subsequent fights to get the witness statements there's often things in there that are not in the summary. Um, in this case, I started looking at it Friday night. This was my Friday night, you know, exciting guy, <laughs> going through documents. Um, and my jaw dropped repeatedly. And I ended up working until after midnight on it. Uh, and there was so much reading and, and you couldn't make sense of it. Nothing was labeled uh, where it was easy to, easy to find what was what. So you kind of had to go through it all. So picked it back up Saturday, same thing, going through it all. And I'm kind of you know, pulling out nuggets, putting them into buckets and categories so I can make sense of it later. Um, I found the statements of the senior officers, found a lot of other interesting commentary from rank and file who also were there that largely have a very similar view of it all. Um, and, and then, yeah, it, it became a scramble to get this story out as quickly as possible while being fair to those involved. Uh, while at the same time being terrified that I was not the only news, me news media outlet with these documents. 
um, really right up until Jump Street when we when it, when he actually published basically at dawn on Monday. Mm-hmm. I assumed it was possible that other people were looking at the same thing. You had to go looking. You had to go read the documents, and I think that's probably why you know, we were able to get it out first is it took a whole lot of work through the weekend. It's a testament to your uh, work ethic, your, your professionalism, what it's what you do, man. Like you're the guy who reads into the, you know, 2000 page document, looks at the witness statements and, and, you know, looks for the pieces that other folks don't know to look for. But I want, I want to push, you know, you're, you're, you're one of the best reporters in the country right now. The state department would not give you a statement. Right. And, and they know you're running a story. Um, this seems like their new strategy. They're stonewalling. Like, I, I don't know how many people at, at the State Department you asked, but in the initial version, I didn't see a statement from the ambassador or from uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan um, or, you know, anybody. So wh- can you break that down here? What's the State Department doing right now with regard to the press and to you? I mean, it's I, I need to be fair about what I don't know. You know, I primarily cover the Pentagon, so I am walking in as a bit more of a stranger on that side. Um, I did reach out uh, Saturday, especially Sunday and right on through Monday, Monday night. I guess the story published Tuesday morning. Um, and, you know, there was no on the record comment to be had. Um, you know, certainly I'm having conversations on background with various people in the administration Sometimes you'll get the administration writ large to engage on an anonymous level. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm trying to be fair. I will include some of those anonymous comments in the absence of something better. Uh, but it's not for a lack of effort that I'm trying to get that on the record commentary. I did get some on the record commentary from the Pentagon. So can I ask, I always want to talk about what else and what's next. I have been one of many critics who have said no one has been held accountable for the failures in Afghanistan. No one has been uh, held accountable for now what is clearly competing stories, right? We've got the military on one side. You've got the State Department on the other side. There were clashes. It's documented. Now they can try to spin it and say you're cherry picking. Uh, They did the same thing with veterans who were saying, you know, things are bad in Afghanistan. You know, they want to focus on the number of people that they've gotten out of Afghanistan and not the people that were left behind. But there is, you know, there is a spin going on here in my view. These are my words. Blinken. Sullivan, a lot of people that that I think were in key leadership positions were never held accountable. And now not only are they not account, they're kind of spinning it as a good news story saying, you know, and you see this from Kirby and others, uh, you know, Admiral Kirby, who used to be on CNN. Now he's at the Pentagon as a spokesperson. They're trying to spin it. They're trying to say, hey, a lot of good things happened. We got a lot done. Nothing to see here as these stories continue to come out. So can you talk about the leadership specifically? And I'm talking about Blinken and and Sullivan. Um, You know, are there any conversations happening internally about firing them or about them resigning? Did that ever come up? Uh, I'm aware of no conversations within the administration that would that would usher anybody out the door. Uh, Certainly, you've had uh, lawmakers, some lawmakers who have called for it, and, and largely that that breaks down along partisan lines. So I think it's you know to a degree easy for the administration to dismiss that. Um, when it comes to what's next, um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot in that report. Um, you know, it seemed to have caught lawmakers off guard. Uh, you had a Senate Armed Services Committee committee hearing the same morning my story pu- was published, uh, and you know. The, the lawmakers were raising it as, how come we didn't know anything about this report? I, I don't know. Were they briefed on the report in, in full? Were they only briefed on the top line findings of what the Pentagon rolled out on Friday? 
Um, I think all that's sort of just still to be sorted out. Uh, one point I wanted to make uh, both the, you know, give a shout out to some colleagues who also did some hard work on this. Uh, Alex Horton uh, was the other name on this byline. Yep. Uh, when we got into August, uh, we put in a whole lot of FOIA requests for various things. You never really know what's going to come back. And we basically split the list, try to make sense of like, okay, what are we forgetting? What do we need to get at? You never really know what you're going to find out and why and when it's going to come back. In this case, Alex, who is currently in Ukraine, uh, reporting from Ukraine, got the email that this FOIA request was ready. He was able to help to some degree, uh, but we wouldn't have this story if he didn't, with quick thinking, also you know, flag this for the rest of us and we started going through it over the weekend. This story doesn't happen mm. without him really being Johnny on the spot with that. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, there's this new wave of folks, you know, that are kind of rising. And, you know, you've got, um, you know, you've had folks like CJ Chivers and others out there for a while who've served in the military, been close to the military and then become reporters. But we've had James Laporta on the show. You mentioned Alex Horton. You've been very close to the military. You know, you all know what to look for. There's a higher level of professionalism and, and I think experience and cultural competency that is changing the dynamic in the press corps now. It's not just folks that frankly sat at the Pentagon. It's folks that have been deployed, but it's also colliding with what seems like uh, the Biden administration is digging in and stonewalling. Like they, they, they you know, I want to talk about Ukraine and, and how they're not allowing for embeds. But do you feel like the Biden administration and Saki and the State Department specifically are just going to keep this up? They're just going to they're just going to not they're not going to respond. They're going to they're going to say this is our version of the story. This is our story and we're sticking to it. Is that what seems to be the strategy right now? I mean, I think it's sort of a two things can be true kind of idea for me. You know, one, it was a historic achievement to get that many people out. I would not dispute that point. I have had that point, you know, written more or less verbatim in, in the stories I've written. That is true. Uh, and I think, you know, to some degree, that should be seen as an achievement. It should be celebrated. There were a whole lot of people that were working virtually 24 hours a day for weeks on that. Um, that does not preclude uh, the discussion of all of the ugliness that also happened here and how we got there. Um, I think we can do those stories about all of the, you know, the quick thinking and the ingenuity and, and the hard work. Uh, we have done those stories. We'll continue to do those stories. Uh, but we have to do the accountability piece of this, too. Mm. Uh, and clearly from these documents, which included, you know, officers who had not been on the record anywhere in any serious way uh, going back to August, uh, they did not see it the same way that other people in the administration do. I mean, yeah, this is like White House Playbook 101. OK, you say, all right, you know, you're not telling enough of the good news stories. You know, you're, you're cherry picking. Uh, you're not looking at the full picture. You know, those are all, you know, basic plays, right? It's throwing a fastball. Like it's it's a really basic political strategy. But it, it also is happening at a time, to your point about accountability, where there's been no accountability for failure at all. I couldn't find a single person post-Afghanistan implosion that has resigned or been fired. As a result, not one in, in the civilian government or the military. Right. And it seems like a lot of decision making came down to the president himself and he can't fire himself. You know, he, he's got Jake Sullivan, who's his national security advisor, who, in my view, either ha had to had to had a responsibility to either predict that this was coming or deal with it as it unfolded. And it seems like he failed in that regard. Then you've got spokespeople and others. But here's the new piece. The same exact people are in charge. 
And now we're on the verge of, of an invasion in Russia, and they're saying they won't allow embedded reporters. So I, I want to talk about those two pieces. But really, specifically, now, before we recorded, I saw the White House press corps is now backing uh, the coalition of military uh, journalists that, that is growing in power. I don't know if you're a part of that or not. But they're calling for embeds, and the White House is saying no. They're saying we won't allow embeds. So can you talk about that? And, and if there's, uh, you know, what is their latest stance on this? And is there precedent for this? Uh, so that uh, when it comes to covering a potential war in Ukraine, you're going to have several things going on. You're going to have reporters in Ukraine itself who are either embedded with the Ukrainian troops or, or simply just man out on the street. Uh, you know, and, and depending on what this invasion looks you know, the war could be all around you feasibly. So it wouldn't be hard to report on that in that sense. Um, the second piece of this is, is, especially from the American point of view, what are, you know, what are the American officials doing? What is the American military doing? Where are we putting forces in our name? Um, so yes, there have been discussions of where can you put American journalists with American troops to tell that story? Uh, that could be Poland. Uh, that could feasibly be in the Baltics if we end up there as well. That could be Germany, where they've got a couple of the headquarters that are relevant. What can you do to help us get this story out and get this story right? Uh, to date, uh, and we now have troops in Poland and more uh, in Germany, and they have shifted some to Romania. Um, we have no American uh, journalists embedded with any of those units. Uh, it's not for a lack of asking. You've, you've seen uh, formal organizations now lobbying to have that kind of access. Uh, the discussion at this point largely seems to hinge on what do they need to do to tell the story uh, and all of the sensitivities that go with covering a war. And I think in particular with Vladimir Putin involved, they're trying to massage the mes messaging in a way that doesn't topple the apple cart any farther. I mean, the expectation, it seems, Dan, after the Iraq invasion, right, which was the last time we had such a and, and, and throughout really the last 20 years has been that you that, that the White House and the administration would allow journalists to basically get up with the 82nd Airborne, fly with them on the plane, go over there and give a perspective that I, I want to focus on specifically to tell the American people what our sons and daughters are experiencing, but also to tell military families what our sons and daughters are experiencing, right? Like that could be someone's son or daughter. And to hear that they won't let Dan Lamoth or Alex Horton or someone else to embed at all, um, it seems like something that's not American to me. Is, is, is there, is there a, has there been a time recently where the White House on either, either Trump or Biden or even Obama said flat out, no, we're going to do a major military exercise, of course, taking into account sensitivity, operational security. We know that. But has there been a time in the last 20 years since the invasion when they said no completely? Uh, I would take it back even farther than that. There's been an ebb and flow here. Um, if you go back to the Gulf War, uh, you know, you did have a lot of frustration about a lot of media access and a lot of uh, people asking why, you know, the reporters were sequestered as far as they were. Um, there, the idea was at the outset of, you know, especially Iraq, because uh, it was frustration early in Afghanistan as well. You had journalists there largely on their own. A lot of stories of them kind of sticking together in the field uh, to tell the story, but being, you know, a step or two removed. Um, uh, that changed with Iraq for the most part. That's when you started seeing, no kidding, going over, you know, the line of departure, that kind of stuff. And then for years and years, 
as doors were kicked in, journalists often being in the stack even. Um, I picked it up around 2010. That's when I started embedding. Uh, and yeah, some four or five hour foot patrols in the heat with, with body armor was not atypical. You know, we have done those stories. I would argue they largely have been effective in helping the American public understand what you're asking of your military. Mm-hmm. Um, as the politics of the nation has changed and as these operations have continued, we have seen a degradation of media access with the military that goes back you know, way, way prior to Biden through Trump back to Obama, really. You know, you had a lot of journalists in that early time frame, that surge era, you know, that when I started uh, embedding with the troops, by the latter half of the Obama era, it was a lot harder to get in there. Mm. Uh, and then once you get through Trump, it was very hard to get in there. There, there are exceptions. You know, I spent some time down on the border, uh, for instance. Um, I, I did a trip to Afghanistan um, in, in the latter era, uh, spent some time with General Miller and his staff shortly before that deal with the Taliban was signed. So there are a handful of exceptions. Mm. Um, we're kind of in that same era still, I think. And I think yeah. even as the administrations have changed, there's a whole lot of reasons you could feasibly say no, uh, that all sound realistic uh, and sound, you know, sound, uh, but it doesn't change the basic trend line that we're seeing less and less access. Yep. It doesn't change the problem of the military being removed from the American public in a lot of ways, except from what you hear from a po- from a podium. Mm. And I want to get, you know, the, the organization is called the Military Reporters and Editors Association. I think, is it Jeff Shogel who's, you know, chairing it or one of the leaders there yeah, now yeah. Who's, who's another guy who's been amazing. And now I saw Steve Portnoy you know, from the White House uh, uh, Correspondents Association has echoed that call. So now you've got, you know, the Barbara Stars of the world, and I'm sure the Martha Raddatzes and others who will ask for this. And, you know, I had an embedded unit with me in Iraq. I had a 60 Minutes crew go out on patrol with me in Baghdad uh, multiple times in the heat with a camera and the whole deal. And, and, you know, I think that it was important in telling our story. I think that's where the Biden administration is missing this year. It actually does them a service in more ways than they than re- they probably recognize. Um, and, but it also does compromise some of the journalistic integrity, in my view. I've always felt embeds are kind of a double-edged sword because, you know, you uh, it's hard to objectively cover someone who's keeping you alive, right? We, we know that. So how do you think this will unfold? You talked about Alex and others. Um, We've got citizen journalists on the ground. If if the White House decides to to totally block every piece of access, how will reporters like you and Alex cover this in real time if 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 Russia invades Ukraine? Uh, I, I think there's a couple pieces here that are important. One one is going to be what does this look like for coverage prior to an invasion, which is I think where we are now, where everybody's trying to be very careful. You know, that nobody wants to like kind of make any moves that might make anybody. Do anything too rash. Um, I can at least understand that line of thinking. Uh, I think once you have an invasion, if you have an invasion, a lot of the arguments that you might use now go out the window. And at that point, you know what the American troops are doing in a place like Poland is important, not only from the perspective of letting America know what its own troops are doing, but also in in, in what's probably going to be a pretty ugly disinformation campaign. And the best way to get around that would be to have an independent, credible voices that can say, no, this is actually what they're doing in Poland, not what you're hearing from the Kremlin. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. Oh, uh, Dan, can can you look ahead? What are the questions now that you are asking? Um, without obviously, I know you're going to probably drop a new story every 48 hours. I hope for the next couple of days and weeks. But what are what do you think are the biggest unanswered questions? Uh, that is particularly at the White House. What, what are they refusing to answer, whether it's about Afghanistan or Ukraine, that you think are most important that maybe they continue to just kick you guys on, like and, and stiff arm you and say, we're not going to answer this? Uh, there are a couple things that you think are important that might be next. I mean, on Afghanistan, I, I, I think it's important to keep having those conversations about what happened. I think it's important to have conversations about what else might be done, uh, even though options are a lot more limited than they used to be, uh, particularly when we do have people still there and we do have interpreters and cultural advisors and whoever else that assisted us that are still relying on us in theory. I'm still getting emails every day, and I'm sure you probably are too. Um, on Ukraine, I feel like so far, at least, there's this effort to do everything they can, but there, there's, a, there's a couple hard lines that you just can't get around. You know, if for whatever, you know, and I think this is like, you know, like an extreme, like five layers of aggression that I don't know that we're ever going to see. If this were to spill into a NATO ally, uh, the obligation would be there. And the president has already said that we would, you know, meet our treaty uh, treaty, uh, obligations and that we would end up in some way uh, trying to push back on that. Um, if this stays in Ukraine, and even if this gets extremely ugly and extremely bloody, and the estimates are horrific, you know, tens of thousands of civilians potentially killed, five million refugees potentially, like very serious thing, but it stays contained. Uh, I think we're going to look for ways to help on the margins. We're probably going to have to deal with uh, the flow of migrants out of the country. Uh, and, And then there will be all the discussions of sanctions uh, and, and what do you do to marginalize this kind of behavior? But but I don't know that there's any appetite for this to become our war. Uh, I, I want to ask you. I want to ask you one more thing about this this journalistic landscape we're in right now, um, because obviously the, the the White House is clamping down on access. In my view, they're spinning on Afghanistan and other places. But a couple of years ago, we had outpourings of whistleblowers. Uh, and it seems like we're in this lull period, and maybe it's an eye of the storm, where there don't seem to be a lot of whistleblowers. And there are a lot of people who know what happened in Afghanistan for real. There are a lot of people who know what's happening now around Ukraine. And 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 I don't know if the reaction to Chelsea Manning and to Snowden and others have chilled whistleblowers, but you've also got Vindman now, who's you know out in the media sphere commenting on all things. So can you can you frame that up? I mean, are there are there less whistleblowers than there used to be because of all of these chilling uh, policy moves um, that have happened over the last couple of years? Uh, I think it's probably partly a, a, a function of timing um, and partly a function of what we saw over the last few years. Uh, you know, the, the Trump administration was chaotic. It had all kinds of problems to cover. And it was also extremely leaky. You know, they, they mm. love to talk about, you know, things journalists were doing that they shouldn't have been. But the reality is there were a whole lot of Trump administration officials who regularly were spilling backroom conversations. That, that's, that's not typical, not on that level. Maybe you'd see it in a, you know, a Bob Woodward book or something on occasion, but you wouldn't see it basically every day. Um, 
I do think you see, you're seeing some message discipline out of the Biden administration that didn't exist for the last few years. So that's one reason it's a little more quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second piece is we're still relatively early in this administration. People tend to talk once they leave government. Mm-hmm. You're not, you know, we're not far enough along where you're seeing a lot of people moving on with their life, resigning, uh, you know, shifting to things where they, you know, might be more comfortable talking about what they saw, what they did, that kind of thing. Hmm. I, I think that's really one of the areas to watch over the next couple of months, especially. And who knows how that dynamic will change if there's a new Congress in the fall and once the election campaign starts to ratchet up. But but I I continue to be surprised that that right now maybe maybe it's an evolution, but the FOIA requests are happening. And that's like this phase. I feel like the next phase is a general or two who you got in that testimony come out and say, let me tell you the real story. And that's the exclusive on 60 Minutes and the book and all of that. Maybe that's the next phase to come. And if it does, I know you'll be on top of it. I have one really hard question for you before we leave. You're a big sports fan. Super Bowl is this weekend. It's it's a great clash with the Bengals and the Rams. Who are you picking? Ooh, I, I'm picking the Rams. I kind of hope the Bengals win. Excellent. Uh, can you, uh, you, you're not a predicting guy, but in sports, maybe you are. You got a, you got a score no, project fair. prediction that's, here? That's out of my lane. I, I can, <laughs> I can, I, I, my analysis would be that the Rams would likely win. How about that? Uh, but I, ju- I just think the Bengals are a really cool story. And, and I, you know, I, I think that would be fun for, for fun for America. Absolutely. I think it would be fun for America if you got to do investigative journalism around sports for a couple of weeks. Uh, and until then, I mean, your, your reporting has been heroic and, and historic and really important. Um, and I'm glad to see you're on TV more often. You know, folks are, are asking you to break stuff down and we need your voice now more than ever. So thank you for your incredible work. Thanks to Alex Horton and the entire team over there that, that's telling us uh, what we need to know. And I hope you'll come back and visit us again. And until then, stay vigilant, my friend. Thanks for having me. And go Yanks. (laughs) (laughs) All right, there it is. That's what you need to know. And Dan Lamoth is a name you need to know. He's the real deal. So follow him on Twitter, read everything he puts out for the Washington Post, and share this episode far and wide. Help us share the truth and help us demand accountability. It's another way that you can be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. If you're a regular part of this community, you know the helpers are out there. So look for the helpers. We'll continue to recognize, honor, and celebrate them wherever we can, including many in the media like Dan Lamoth who are busting their ass and helping reveal the truth. Check out the hashtag look for the helpers on Twitter and share your ideas. And you can see video from my conversation with Dan Lamoth, of course, and get Independent Americans gear and join our Patreon community if you go to independentamericans.us. If you've got friends who aren't into podcasts, they can watch this episode as well. It's at independentamericans.us. And if you are a Patreon member, You got this episode 24 hours before everybody else. I'm going to try to give you all extra content, more content, more opportunities in the days ahead. And I'm going to try to mix it up a little bit in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to try to bring you more conversations on more breaking news that you really don't hear anywhere else. Conversations that might be shorter and maybe more often 
Let me know what you think about this episode. Let me know what you think about the changing formats. We're going to continue to improvise, adapt, and overcome as we have this entire pandemic and as we have since this show started. So sound off. Let me know what you want to hear. Let me know what you think. And as always, please support us. Go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. You can also subscribe for free and share. This podcast is 100% free. And all I ask is that you share it and please spread the word. Righteous is going to continue to bring you the five eyes in all our podcasts and everything we do. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. Be sure to check out the Firefighters podcast with Rob Sarah. Be sure to subscribe now for what's coming soon from Uncle Montel, the OG of weed, and B-Dorm. Our next podcast is coming very soon, so look for that and much more in 2022. We're going to continue to improvise, adapt, and overcome and change the game. Because America's more divided than ever, and independent Americans and righteous media are working to change that. We're going to add light to contrast to heat and bring you content like nothing else you hear anywhere else. So keep sharing that content. Help us build this movement and keep sharing the hope because hope is the oxygen of democracy. And it's that energy that will keep this movement of independent Americans growing week by week by week. And stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And that vigilance is paying off. This week, across America, mask mandates are ending. And that is worth celebrating. Yeah, it's a time to celebrate. I celebrated the end of the New York State mask mandate for private businesses with a steak dinner at a local restaurant that limped and grinded for the last two years to survive. I went over there to support them and to celebrate the end of this phase. Hopefully the mandate for New York schools will be over soon, too. Many of us have worked hard in New York and all across this country. We've been disciplined to get to this point. Now, if more of us had done the same, days like this would have come a lot sooner. But now is a step forward nonetheless. Our war against the virus is not over yet. But victories we earn are worth celebrating. So celebrate a little bit. And stay vigilant. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant. And we're all in this together. From every small business owner that somehow made it to this point to the many that didn't, from New York to California to Afghanistan to Ukraine to Syria, from CENTCOM commander Kenneth McKenzie to Dan Lamont to Cool and the Gang to you. All across this country, no matter who you are, we're all in this together. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening to this special episode. Enjoy life with less mask wearing where appropriate. Enjoy the Olympics, enjoy the Super Bowl, and win the day. We've worked hard to get to this point, and there are hard days ahead, but we've gotten this far. So stay vigilant, America, and celebrate the victories when you can, like now. It's a celebration. Powered by Righteous Media.